0: This is Viewpoint with attorney and author Chuck Chrismeyer. Viewpoint is a one hour talk show confronting the issues of America's heart and home. And now, with today's edition of Viewpoint, here is Chuck Chrismeyer. Will there be a third temple in Jerusalem? And is the third temple imminent? That's the question before us here today on Viewpoint, even amid the cacophony of COVID that seems to be commandeering the entire news media all over the world. And yet there are other things that are very important, in fact, maybe even more important. And today we're going to talk about this battle of the temple, the Temple Mount and the Third Temple. You may recall... That a few years ago, I wrote a book called King of the Mountain, the eternal epic and end time battle for he who rules the temple mount is deemed to rule the world. Well, that is true. He who rules the temple mount is deemed to rule the world. And it's the eternal epic and end time battle. And that's what that book does is tie together all of human history, 6,000 years of human history from the creation to the return of Christ, and shows how the efforts of the leaders of our world and the political powers of the world, and even the spiritual powers of the world, have been moving inexorably ever since creation to ultimately place Satan's dominion through a counterfeit Christ on the Temple Mount. But there is no temple there. There was a first temple. And then there was a second temple in the time of Jesus. But there's not been a temple since then. Will there be a third temple? And is that third temple imminent? That was the question asked by a friend of this broadcast, Scott Lively. And I'm going to share with you some excerpts from his piece that came out uh, not long ago. In fact, uh, just a few days ago. Asking that question, is the third temple imminent? Now, before we go further, I want to uh, explore the meaning of the word imminent. Because this word has taken on uh, what we call in the law uh, a term of art. In other words, a term that has unique and exclusive meaning to the field of law. But here, the word imminent has what has taken on a unusual, almost exclusive meaning within the realm of biblical prophecy. Yet the word imminent is not a matter of prophecy at all. You can't find it in the Bible. But it is indeed become a theological construct held by many, particularly within the pre-trib and uh, pre-tribulational a pre-tribulational view of uh, the end times, eschatological matters, that is, matters of the end times, and also dispensationalism. But what does it mean? The implications of the word imminent are that there's absolutely nothing that has to transpire before Christ returns. Now, this is a doctrine that's been held now since the days of Charles Schofield and uh, John Darby back in the late 1800s and into the early 1900s as Charles Schofield penned his Schofield Reference Bible that sponsored and promoted and passed around the world this concept of a pre-tribulation rapture. But we're not here to talk about a pre-trib or a post-trib or mid-trib or any other kind of trib rapture. We're here to talk about this word imminent as it relates to a third temple. Is a third temple imminent? The real meaning of the word imminent within our English language means that it's something that's, shall we say, right around the corner. It's soon to be experienced. Not a long time period to be waited for. But soon and very soon. As the song said out of the 1970s, soon and very soon, with Andre Crouch, we're going to see the king. But what does that mean? What does soon mean? Imminent means sooner than soon. Soon, with the Lord, could be a thousand years. A thousand years is a day. Imminent, on the other hand, within the construct of Pre-trib theology means nothing can be further expected or required before Christ returns. So, in other words, ever since the end of the 1800s, when John Darby uh, Darby sponsored his uh, pre-trib rapture doctrine, and it was promoted by Charles Schofield in the 1920s, nothing was needed, according to these theologians, for Christ to return. Everything was finished. I have a hard time accepting that, particularly when I read the Bible. Particularly when I read the Bible. And so, if a third temple was necessary in order to prepare the way for Christ's second coming, so that, listen, so that Satan could, as the Apostle Paul wrote in Thessalonians, walk into the temple and declare himself God, and so that, as the prophet Malachi foretold, the Lord himself would then suddenly come to his temple, then apparently a temple was necessary. Therefore, the second coming was not imminent, in the sense that it was being described. On the other hand, the question is whether a third temple is imminent. And if a third temple is imminent, then maybe the second coming of Christ is similarly imminent following a third temple. So will there be a third temple? That's the question before us as we move forward here today. You see, in order to have a conversation, an intelligent conversation about these things, we have to define the terms. We have to know what we're talking about, and we have to know what other people are thinking when they're talking about and using those terms. So here's my question for you. If the God of Israel is the God of second chances, will Israel have a third chance Or would be that too much of a chance for reborn Israel to contemplate in the face of international consternation and condemnation? That's the real existential question confronting the seed of Abraham and David at this very moment of history, now poised on the cusp of the seventh millennium. Some say, well, we already entered the seventh millennium. Well, it depends on who you talk to. It depends on who you talk to. According to the Jewish calendar, maybe not. Which calendar is correct? We don't know. And that also may determine the meaning of the word imminent. The second temple endured for nearly five centuries until after having been dramatically expanded by Herod the Great, it was destroyed by the Romans. They were intent on the absolute rule of the world. The emperor couldn't countenance a temple on Moriah, representing an alternative kingship. So he dispatched his son, General Titus, to again destroy the temple and demolish the walls of Jerusalem and disperse disperse the people into the third great dispersions from which the Jews have not yet fully recovered, but will. Hence, will there be a third temple? We'll get back to that when we come back after this break. Stay tuned. The temple has always been, or at least has always, eventually spelled trouble for the Jewish people. And that which was more than any other symbolized and solidified national identity, also eventually became the symbolic expression of Israel's destruction. So, there's this incredible connection that seems to have largely escaped Jewish consciousness in spite of the annual lament of Tish B'Av, the ninth of Av which is the celebration or remembrance, the painful remembrance of the destruction of the first temple, the second temple, and also many other terrible things that have happened to Israel. Yet the trials of the temple were not, in truth, merely persistent and recurring tribulation of the Jews as Jews, but they were also the collective effect of their recurring and progressive abandonment of allegiance to the God of Abraham and David. A covenant God could not continue to manifest his favored presence among a people who persistently and rebelliously stiffed his Holy Spirit by grace and thus paralyzed his mercy. It was promised only to them who fear and obey him. When Israel's fear of the Lord revealed in faithful covenantal obedience waned, so did God's Shekinah glory dissipate and departed from among the people, leaving his temple desolate and open for destruction. So whether it happened by the ruthless hand of Nebuchadnezzar or Syria's despotic Antiochus Epiphanes or Rome's deified Pontifex Maximus, the temple trouble became a time of Jacob's trouble. Have you heard that term? The time of Jacob's trouble. Well, it's right there in the Bible. Right there in the Bible. The time of Jacob's trouble. And it's a time right at the end of time, just before the returning of Christ as Messiah. When the temple of God's presence is desolate, trouble is on the way. The greater the spiritual desolation... That is, whether in the physical temple or in a nation or in an individual, the greater the anticipated destruction in the epic battle for King of the Mountain. So you may recall the great prophet Malachi, just before 400 years of prophetic silence, made clear, here's what he said, the Lord shall suddenly come to his temple and he will be like a refiner's fire to purge and to purify. But then he asked a question, Who may abide or endure the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears? That very same language, Who may abide, is used in the New Testament. Also, I believe, by the prophet Joel. That's a very interesting phrase. Who may abide the day of his coming? In other words, when... Yeshua, Christ returns, it's going to be not a time for rejoicing for most, but a time of great lament, sorrow, and terror for the majority. Now, it's my conviction that there will yet be another temple, and with it's going to come a promise of peace by a fella who is going to counterfeit himself as the Prince of Peace. But ultimately, that peace will turn into terrifying power, and it will be the time of Jacob's trouble that the prophet Jeremiah talked about in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7. And it's going to strike terror among the nations, and that's why Jesus... So, specifically pointed out in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discord, except, except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. That's how terrifying it's going to be. So, in effect, the eternal, epic, and end time battle for King of the Mountain lies straight ahead. What mountain is that? The Temple Mount. The Mount where God chose to place his name where the first temple was built by God's instruction to David, where the second temple was built in replacement of the first, and where there is a current vacancy waiting for a third temple. In order to get a bigger picture of this, in order to get a more complete picture of this, I would like to encourage you, if you do not already have my book, King of the Mountain. To go to our website, saveus.org, that's saveus.org, and get your copy. It is a $20 book, and it is yours for $15 on our website, saveus.org. King of the Mountain. You can give us a call at 1 800 SAVE USA, that's 1 800 SAVE USA, or you can write to us at SAVE America Ministries, P O Box 7. 0879 Richmond Virginia two three two five five. You're writing a check at five dollars for postage and handling. All right. Now I want to move back to this piece from Scott Lively, <clears throat> a uh, friend of this ministry. Uh, he is a fine gentleman in the Northeast, and uh, he asked the question: Is the Third Temple imminent? He said, I've always been a strong supporter of Israel. This is not because I always agree with the secular leadership, and that's true with me as well, but because the Bible makes clear that Israel is an intact nation-state at the time of Christ's return. Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, that's in Matthew 24, that we would know the season of his return by the revival of the fig tree, the primary biblical symbol of the house of Judah. So between now and then, he writes, the Antichrist will emerge and establish a short-lived kingdom of evil based in Israel and trigger the outpouring of God's wrath by setting up the abomination that causes desolation in the holy place. And he writes, most scholars identify the holy place as the long-anticipated third temple of Jerusalem. That's the only place that the Jewish people, particularly the Orthodox Jews, would deem to be the holy place. But it doesn't exist right now. They can't even get their foot hardly up on on the Temple Mount for fear of a riot. But there is an open space there just across from the Eastern Gate, now known as the Golden Gate, Where there is plenty of room for the construction of the temple, right smack dab, as you might say, across from the Mount of Olives and walking right up through the Cadron Valley, up through the Eastern or Golden Gate, right up to where the temple would be. High drama. I've been there looking over that area and it is spectacular. But this counterfeit Christ figure, The imposter, the imposter Christ, is going to emerge. The Apostle Paul talks about him. And he's going to walk into that holy place and declare himself God. When that happens, all hell will openly break loose. Until that time, hell will have already broken loose in order to get him into that place. And that's exactly what the battle for King of the Mountain is about. You see, the battle for King of the Mountain is about Satan and his ultimate goal to place his rulership on the very holy place that Christ was ordained to rule from. So Satan said, I will ascend to the heights of the north, and I will be like the Most High God. How is he going to do that? Not himself, but through his surrogate. And his surrogate is called the Antichrist, one who is against Christ. I think a better way is to call him the counterfeit Christ or the imposter Christ. And so, the book, Antichrist, How to Identify the Coming Imposter. If you do not have that book, Antichrist, The Coming Impostor, I urge you to get it. Because these books, you see, in sequence are preparing the way of the Lord for history's final hour. They're preparing God's people who show an interest in the things that interest God in order to prepare themselves and their families and their flocks including pastors preparing their flocks and their families to prepare them for history's final hour. That's why these books are written. They're not written to be sensationalistic. They're written for you. They're written to be life-changing for you. In fact, people that have read Antichrist realize this is not like anything else we've ever read about Antichrist. This has poignant application for me as the reader yeah so it's not just about information it's about application and the application is what brings transformation that's what the book is about and I think you will find that to be the case for you and for your family that book is 22 dollars It's on our website, saveus.org, that's saveus.org. You can give us a call at 1-800-SAVE-USA, 1-800-SAVE-USA, or write to us at Save America Ministries, P.O. Box 70879, Richmond, Virginia, 23255, writing a check at $5 for postage and handling. Now, just so you know, if you're a relatively new listener, if you purchase two or more books, not the same title even, but two or more books, you will receive a discounted uh, shipping and handling charge. So instead of $5 each, it would be $7 for the two. So uh, you say $3 that way, just for your information. Again, I want to go back to the piece by Scott Lively, asking the question, is the third temple em- imminent? We talked about the Antichrist. Between now and then, he will emerge. The Temple Institute which is dedicated to ensuring the temple is built, has, to very precise biblical standards, already prepared all of the implements that would be used there, has built the altar, has trained Levite priests identified by genetic testing. It's amazing. So, the writer goes on to say, I think the consensus of Christian prophecy watchers today is that we're very close to that final phase especially as we watch the secular-controlled Israeli government lead the world in forced vaccinations, in direct and shocking contravention of the post-Holocaust Nure- Holocaust Nuremberg Code and against the vehement objection of our spiritual first cousins, that is, Orthodox Jews. So it would seem that the scene is set, and we are awaiting only the building of the temple, before the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness the Antichrist is revealed who's going to seat himself in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God if you want to know where Paul talks about that it's in second thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 to 2 but missing in most of these discussions of these matters is the huge significance of of a pair of seemingly minor prophecies in the book of Genesis that were made by Jacob, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob whose name was changed to Israel, about his sons Judah and Joseph who became the northern tribes of Israel. Here's the prophecy. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Now, we're going to talk about that for a moment. Just as the house of Judah is represented in Scripture by the fig tree, the house of Israel, Joseph, is represented by the vine. The fig tree and vine together are symbolic of the harmony of the two houses of Israel, Judah and Israel, or Joseph or Ephraim, all referring to the northern tribes of Israel. The prophet Micah said, but in the last days it shall come to pass that they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. So he used these two phrases, these two words, that are symbols of Israel and Judah. The two southern tribes and the ten northern tribes. Because They were separated after the time of Solomon. But, until the day of the Lord, there remains a division and a rivalry between these two houses. We're going to talk about that when we get back, and then we'll go back and take a further look at the end-time temple. Is this the time? Is it? And what are its implications? Stay tuned, friends. This is Viewpoint. And viewpoint does determine destiny. There are no neutral viewpoints. There is so
1: much more about Chuck Chris Meyer and Save America Ministries on our website, saveus.org. For example, under the marriage section, God has marriage on his mind.
0: The temple, the temple mount, whether there will be a third temple, and is it imminent? Is its rebuilding imminent? Some people would say, in fact, many people would say, it's impossible for there to be a third temple because it would start World War III. Well, maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't. We don't know what would happen in order to precipitate the building of the temple. We don't know but what the Antichrist himself would facilitate the building of the temple in order to, shall we say, ingratiate himself to the Jewish people so that they would feel like he was the Christ. Helping them build a temple. He must be Messiah. A lot of people seem to forget that. But until the day of the Lord, the return of Christ, there remains a division and a rivalry between the two houses of Israel. Except during King David's fully unifying reign. Remember under King David, he gathered together all of Israel, northern tribes, southern tribes, they all made him king. And during his reign, the kingdom of Israel was extended to the boundaries that had been prophesied by God, to Abraham hundreds of years earlier. All the way out to Damascus in Syria. Oh, at least three to four times the size of current Israel. And it's going to happen again. Why? Because God said so. When God has spoken... He means what he says. He says what he means. And regardless of the way it looks on the ground at any particular moment, God is still God. He knows the end from the beginning. You and I do not. So it's high time that we come to orient our minds and our hearts according to what God has said, not according to what we think or according to what some prognosticator thinks what some uh, pope thinks, what some pastor or priest thinks, or what some politician thinks. Only David and Jesus rule a totally unified and righteous twelve tribes of Israel. So God is going to put Jesus on the throne of his father David. Now let's go back to Genesis 49.10. We were there... A little bit ago where Jacob gives a blessing over his sons his 12 sons the 12 tribes of Israel and he's talking about the house of Judah rules only from the establishment of the monarchy until Shiloh comes the context also makes clear that Shiloh is Christ Now, here's what he said the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. In other words, Judah is going to rule and reign more powerfully, more uh, pronounced in the mind and heart of God until Christ returns. And that's Shiloh, until Shiloh comes. Then he becomes the ruler. Why? Because he is of the house of Judah. He is the lion of Judah, not the tribe anymore. So Shiloh, when you think about it, was the home of God's tabernacle in the territory of Ephraim, which was another name for Israel in the Old Testament. It was the capital of the, of Israel through the era of the judges. Shiloh was therefore symbolic of the authority of the house of Israel in contrast to the authority of the house of Judah, in whose territory was each successive temple to God. But when Jesus comes again as Shiloh, it will be to unite the house of Israel and the house of Judah, as the high priest of a tabernacle whose authority precedes and is superior to that of the future third temple in Jerusalem. Therefore, This writer says, our heart should thus not focus on the temple, but look beyond it until Shiloh comes. That is, until Christ comes. I agree with that in most applications, implications. However, some people would conclude that that means you give no attention to a rebuilt temple. And that's where the problem comes. And many a pastor deprives the people of understanding of the fulfillment of biblical prophecy by by forming that kind of conclusion that, well, God doesn't live in temples made with hands, and therefore uh, the third temple is irrelevant because God's going to build his own temple uh, not made with hands where we're all going to be living stones, and therefore a third temple is irrelevant. No, the third temple is not irrelevant. If it's in the Bible, it's not irrelevant. It is one more step and absolutely a conclusive step that Jesus is returning soon and very soon. Now, why is that third temple necessary? We need to talk about that. Why is that necessary? Because for Christians, we argue, and I've heard many a pastor argue, almost till they were blue in the face, that a third temple is irrelevant. Well, let me ask you this. When Jesus came to the second temple, that was advanced, uh, just tri- tripled probably by Herod the Great, who was an ungodly king, if there ever was one. What did he do when he rode into Jerusalem on the donkey on Palm Sunday? The first thing he did was ascend up to the temple. Why did he go there? If the temple was irrelevant, why did he go there? And listen to what he said as recorded in the scriptures when he went there. He found the money changers there, selling, buying and selling the sacrifices for the people and apparently they were conducting it illegitimately taking advantage of the people. So Jesus turned over the tables of the money changes. Remember that right in the court of the temple. And he made this statement. It is written. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves notice Jesus called it His house. If it was irrelevant, how could He call it His house? Was the tabernacle that God instructed Moses to build back there in Exodus chapter seven, uh, chapter uh, in the book of Exodus, was that irrelevant too? No, God told him to build it. Did God inhabit tabernacles? No but he knew that the people needed that place to demonstrate the Shekinah glory of God. And that's what he did. He used that temple throughout their 40, their tabernacle throughout their 40 years in the wilderness so that God could demonstrate his presence, his Shekinah glory, which he did by an amazing cloud when Solomon built the first permanent temple, that David, a man after God's own heart, had gathered the the pieces together, the building construction materials together for many, many years, and Solomon dedicated the temple. If you will read about it in Chronicles, you will find out that God showed up. Triple time. His glory filled the temple. So much so that they couldn't inhabit the temple. Was that temple irrelevant? Was that God's temple? And yet the scriptures tell us that God never lived in temples made with hands. Not in the Old Testament and not in the New Testament. He was God all the way through. All by himself. So for people to say that the temple is irrelevant, they have no comprehension of what they're talking about. Not really. So let's go to the third temple. There is no third temple now. But why would it be relevant? There was a second temple that Jesus came to and called it his house. But then he said... Not one stone will be left upon another until it's all destroyed. And exactly, that's exactly what happened. When Titus came through, the Roman... Titus came through and destroyed it and took all the accoutrements captive to Rome. Many believe that the Vatican still houses many of those golden articles from the temple including the menorah i'm not here to testify about that that a former president of israel was sent to the vatican to claim them but a rebuilt temple is increasingly anticipated in 1983 a newspaper poll showed a surprising 18% of israelis thought it was time to rebuild the temple just 3% wanted to wait for the messiah By 2009, 64% of Israelis said the time was right to rebuild the temple. Amazing, isn't it? And now, it's even more than that. So efforts have been made. Efforts have been made big time to prepare for the rebuilding of the temple. They've even prepared the altar to be used all the accoutrements according to biblical standards the cornerstone has been prepared the sacrificial altar has been constructed the worship vessels have been prepared the priests have been identified the Sanhedrin the ruling group of Israel 71 elders of Israel were reconstituted reconstituted in 2004 for the first time in what was it 1,900 years. But again, why a third temple? Is it really necessary? Why would it be necessary if Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple? We'll answer that when we get back.
1: Have you ever considered what the early church was like? But the same can be found right now. Go to SaveUs.org and click Sell Church. We can revive first century Christianity for the 21st century. It's about people, not programs. It's about a body, not a building. That's SaveUs.org. Click Sell Church.
0: Welcome back to Viewpoint. I'm Chuck Chrismeyer. our viewpoint concerning the temple, a rebuilt temple and so on has everything to do with destiny. Does the world need the temple? Does the world need a third temple? Well, apparently, maybe the world doesn't need the third temple, but the Jewish leaders do think the world needs the third temple, and we're going to see why in this segment of the program today. But let's suppose that they believe that the world needs the temple, but do you and I? Do Christians need the temple? Does anybody else need the temple other than the Jewish people? Well, it depends on how you look at it. And we're going to see why I frame it that way. First of all, we need to understand what the Jewish people's belief system is. It's a sacrificial system. They have no atonement for their sin without the sacrifice of bulls and goats, so to speak. No atonement for their sin without the sacrifice of bulls and goats because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And the Bible mandates that the only place those sacrifices can be made is at the temple. Ah, But guess what? There is no temple. Are you beginning to get the significance now? And the leaders of Israel well know that. And they're distressed that they have no atonement for their sin. They have not received the Messiah. They've not received the shed blood of Christ. Therefore, they require the blood of bulls and goats. Now, some rabbis after the destruction of the temple, came up with an alternative idea, well, we have something better. Good works. If we'll do good works, more good works, that will suffice, and we won't need to make those sacrifices. Or at least, we'll substitute the good works for those sacrifices. But down deep, the serious Jewish people know that ain't true. In fact, the Bible itself tells us in the New Testament that by the works, by our works, no one can be saved. By the works of the law, can no flesh be justified? Yet that's all the Jewish people have is the hope of the sacrifice of bulls and goats or good works. Therefore, they have been anticipating praying for, preparing for a rebuilt temple for a very long time, and that has been intensifying so much that 14 years ago, the Jewish, the Jerusalem Post declared a headline, the world needs the temple. Wow. Wow. The article was very explicit in explaining, from the Jewish perspective, why the entire world needs the temple. So now we're going to move beyond why Israel needs the temple to why the world needs the temple. The temple is cardinal to Israel's purpose as a holy nation and a kingdom of priest-teachers, through whom all the families of the earth are to be blessed, declared the Jerusalem Post. The people of Israel were entrusted to teach the world that because God created every human being in his image, Each must be free and inviolable and that our God of love and morality wants a world of peace and security for all. Peace and security. Peace and prosperity. Those are the three words that define the new global order, the new world order, the European order or union, and all the other unions that have been forming in our country to prepare for the new world order. Peace and security, peace, and prosperity, which are English words to define the Hebrew word shalom. The place from which this message, says the Jerusalem Post, must emanate is Jerusalem. The city of peace and the temple is to be the beacon from which this message goes forth, to usher in the time when nations shall not lift up sword against nation and humanity will not train for war anymore. Now, that's their vision. Did you know that 14 years ago, the reconstituted Sanhedrin, that is 71 elders of Israel, that had been reconstituted, had not existed since the time virtually of Christ, they're the ones that condemned Jesus to the cross for blasphemy, Then, after the temple was destroyed, they disappeared. And then, they were reconstituted in 2007. Ynet News presented this historic headline. The Sanhedrin's Peace Initiative. Now, how might reestablishing the Sanhedrin, dedicated to rebuild the temple on the Temple Mount, present a plan for global peace, amid such seeming provocation where people say, ah, to do something of that, we'll like start World War III. Well, here's what they wrote, the Jewish sages. They drafted a letter, translated it into 70 languages, and sent it to all government institutions in the world, including the sons of Esau and Ishmael, in other words, the Muslims and Arabs, in the letter, the rabbis of the Sanhedrin warn that the world is nearing a catastrophe. They write that the only way to bring peace among nations, states, and religions is by building a house for God where Jews will worship, pray, and offer up sacrifice according to the vision of the prophets. The rabbis also called on non Jews to help the people of Israel fulfill their destiny and build the temple in order to prevent bloodshed across the globe. It was a shocking announcement, friends. What they're saying is, and believing it in their hearts, that without the rebuilt temple, there is no place ultimately for peace in the world. All the efforts will fall away, will not be able to be accomplished until a temple is rebuilt. Can you understand then why a counterfeit Messiah, commonly referred to as the Antichrist, might very well appear to be the one who will unite the world to assist all in building that temple? Can you imagine the glory that he will get? Can you imagine within Israel the acclaim that will flow to that person who will be deemed to be not the grace things that slice bread, but perhaps the one that we've been waiting for for 2,000 years or 3,000 years, the Messiah himself? I want you to contemplate this seriously because I am thoroughly convinced that that is exactly what's going to take place. The Jewish people have to have a deep sense of conviction. There has to be something that occurs that is so salutary to them as Jewish people that it will cause them to shift their trust almost unreservedly, unreservedly. And if this counterfeit Christ figure can gain the trust of Israel, he will then be able to gain the Temple Mount. And the Temple Mount is deemed to be the very place, it's the very place where God chose to put his name there. It's the very place where he intended to offer, where he did offer up his only son as a sacrifice for the world and for the Jewish people. And Satan wants to co-opt it. These are the reasons why a third temple is important. Now, will Jesus, as God, claim that third temple as his temple? He claimed the first temple is his. He claimed the second temple is his. He claimed the tabernacle is his. Will he claim that is his? Or will he build another one, as some believe? I can't answer those questions directly. The only thing that I can quote from the scripture concerning this is Malachi chapter 3. The Lord himself shall suddenly come to his temple even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord. And who shall stand when he appears? Who shall abide when he comes? And who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and he shall purify. George Frederick Handel in his great Messiah, Oratorio, penned those words, and I can hear them ringing to this very day in my mind's ear. Maybe they should ring in your mind's ear. Because if the Lord himself is going to come suddenly, indeed he is, whether he comes imminently the way some theologians suspect, or whether he just comes suddenly when the majority of the people on the planet are least suspecting it, but when true followers of Jesus Christ know that it's the season and we're prepared, then it will not seem sudden to us. And that's why the Apostle Paul wrote very clearly to the Thessalonians, he says, don't don't allow this to take you by surprise. We're children of the day, not of the night. We know these things. My question to you is, do you know them? Most Christians do not. Most Christians today have been lured to believe they won't have to be concerned about the Antichrist. Why? Because some have taught them, we're going to be out of here. We don't have to worry about anything. We don't have to be concerned about anything. We don't have to endure anything. Whatever happened to persecution, whatever happened to Jesus' words... He that endures to the end shall be saved. Whatever happened to all of the warnings of Scripture that are not to unbelievers but to believers? Whatever happened to those? Have we also been captured by the uh, itching ears messages that the Apostle Paul warned about that will deceive so many? This is the reason, friends, why on this program we say over and over again we're preparing the way of the Lord for history's final hour. Yes, we're talking about our nation. Yes, we're talking about strengthening our nation. Yes, we're talking about rebuilding the foundations of faith and freedom as a voice to the church declaring vision for the nation in America's greatest crisis hour. But it's for a greater purpose. It's not with the idea that America is going to be the eternal home of the saved. As the song said, this world is not my home. I'm patriotic, believe me. I love the flag. Just ask my wife. But I'm distressed that America has gone the way of Israel and has gone the way of the pagan nations. And for that reason, I want to feel incumbent upon me, having left the practice of law at the height of my career, to plead this ultimate cause in the land as a voice to the church, declaring vision for the nation, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for your feet. Get a copy of the book King of the Mountain, $15. The book Antichrist, $21. Between those two, you are going to have a great deal of important reading material. Thanks for joining us. Become a partner, friends. Do it today. Don't delay. These are ultimate times. Do you agree? Then let's act accordingly. God bless and be a blessing.